0: This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. I'm Matt Fonslow, and due to popular demand, I have someone back on the podcast. Oddly enough, shortly after the divorce episode, so I don't know, we might be learning something Very, very new today. Uh, It's my wife, Danielle. She is a drug and alcohol counselor for Zumbro Valley in Rochester, Minnesota. So thank you for being on again. The Napa Expo will be held July 18th through the 21st at the Venetian Convention and Expo Center in Las Vegas. Stay on the forefront of the latest technologies and industry trends. Registration opens April 2022. Not enrolled, but interested in attending? Contact your servicing NAPA store for more information. So the last episode, we talked, I guess, about quite a few different things concerning substance use disorder. Probably one of the things we tried to hammer home, uh, or I should probably say you tried to hammer home, was to try to stop using the word addiction and using substance use disorder. Correct. So I guess maybe something I didn't ask, and probably would be really interesting to know more about is uh, kind of the diagnostic, maybe not the process, but how do you arrive at a diagnosis of a substance use disorder?
1: Sure. First, they come in for an assessment and answer a whole bunch of questions. But at the end, a few are most important. So you can have a mild moderate or severe diagnosis. And now they've changed it over the years. Uh, if you use one substance or you use multiple, it used to be like a poly substance use disorder, but now they have individual criteria for each. Um, and then ultimately you get like a mild, moderate and severe. So One of the things is uh, if the substance is taken in larger amounts or over a longer period than was intended. So kind of that, oh, I'm just going to have two beers tonight and then you drink 12. That would be one criteria. Or you've tried to cut down, you have a desire to quit using it, the substance, but have been unsuccessful. So... And just the persistent desire to stop. Kind of like smoking cigarettes is one. you here, like, I really want to stop. And you, they don't. They've tried gum. They've tried medication, whatnot. And then they continue to smoke cigarettes.
0: Would something like, it seems like a common scenario. Mm-hmm. I could be full of it. But it seems like a common scenario is I want to quit smoking. I want to quit vaping. I, they stop a week, maybe two weeks, maybe a month. Uh, And then you see them smoking again. And usually usually they have a response of like, it's just too much stress going on. There's too many things going on in my life. And it's almost like stuff gets blown out of proportion for the reaction. Does that follow along those same lines a little bit or it's more the...
1: I would say so because it's a persistent desire. I mean, there's been desire and they continue regardless if it's three days, they start again or a week or um, a month. They've tried to cut down or cut back and been unsuccessful. So there's 11 different criteria. If you meet two of those, you have a mild uh, diagnosis and then um, continue to go up moderate. If you have uh, six or more, then that's a severe diagnosis. If they're craving, I mean, I'm guessing when... Somebody is looking to stop smoking cigarettes and yeah, they're smoking again in a month. They're experiencing cravings, psychological. It's more psychological than it is physical. Because even with cigarettes, you have physical desire based on like, you know, headaches or um, fatigue or things like that from smoking cigarettes and then quitting. Uh, More criteria too is... Uh, continued use despite having like persistent or recurrent social or interpersonal problems. And then um, tolerance, withdrawal. So there's a few interesting things with tolerance, but one thing is, is that you need... So if somebody has two beers and now they need six to feel a buzz or catch a buzz, that would be a tolerance. But they can also decrease their tolerance because they use so much. So... Uh, Your body starts rejecting with like alcohol or other substances, but alcohol, I've seen it the most uh, obvious, I guess, (laughs) where it's easy to to see the tolerance decrease. So they've drank over a number of years and now they have two shots of, of liquor and they're blasted, blitzed. And before they used to be able to drink a whole bottle, and so now their tolerance has decreased because
0: that's interesting. you bring that up because I guess I've witnessed that hmm. from a uh, family members specifically. I guess we'll just say a couple family members. I never thought about that that I've witnessed that where they have drank um their chosen beverage in high volumes for decades. Yep. It's just like you say, they had, it used to seem like it would take so much. Their tolerance was so high. They, they may even argue they couldn't get drunk. Mm-hmm. Sure. Wow. You know, family events or whatever, they, they came in stone silver. But yeah, after not that many, they were, yeah, they were three sheets to the wind hard. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's quite fascinating. I've
0: never thought of that.
1: Um, not good, fascinating, I guess, but it's fascinating to me um, how much it affects each person differently, honestly. You know, people can, like sometimes they'll think, oh, I think my, you know, cousin's an alcoholic, he drinks every weekend. But that doesn't really qualify him to be an alcoholic, right? You, you kind of look at these different criterias and is this happening in their life? Are they, you know... Uh, One the one question I ask so there's recurrent use resulting in failure to fill major role obligations at like work, school, or home. So, you think about the people that are calling in on Monday morning because they have a hangover. That would be one of those things. You know, it it doesn't take much to uh, to diagnose somebody.
0: Yeah, and I don't want I don't want this to go like a tangent or sound like I'm trying to really push an agenda or anything, but. Um, One one question that kind of pops in my head when you say that with the either drinking every weekend or having um, something, you know, whatever that may be uh, every evening, if they're sitting there across from you going through this process of, uh, you know, your diagnostic process, the analysis, whatever interview, say they pass, say they, they don't really qualify or if they do, they're really on the low end, but they do tell you. You know, I get home from work every night. It's a couple of you know we'll pick on beer, right? Uh, it's a couple of beers every night. Yep. And that by itself may not qualify them, but do you do you find yourself having to say something like, uh, "Be careful"? And it sounds like I'm pushing something here. It, it's on, just an honest curiosity of is this maybe a gateway or? Not so much like the uh, chemical portion of it, but the the habit, the training of your uh, of your body, of your brain uh, as a coping mechanism for the the process of coming home, relaxing, getting over a rough day, whatever. You know, I'm not trying. I know it sounds like I may be pushing for something here, and it's not. It's. I really wonder. Is that something you just say? Hey, you know, just be careful with that.
1: I think I might try to bring awareness. Um, What I find though is you don't see too much of that when they're coming in the office or or it'll be, I just have a couple a night and that's not the truth. You know, they're having more. Uh, And, you know, and then I follow up with questions. If you're having a couple, have you noticed that, you know, your tolerance is um, higher and you're really not getting that effect that you're finding three or four, you know, works better and... A lot of times they'll be like, "Yeah, you know, sometimes," um, but so not not necessarily. I don't do too much of that. Just just because I'm really there to assess their situation, not educate, not do anything. But you know, if it's sometimes it can be a really good conversation that we're having, and they have a little bit of worry about drinking every night, and then I might go into you know. Trying to bring awareness to it, uh, especially with alcohol. Mostly with those things, usually people don't just you know use meth casually, so or <laughs> or other hard drugs. Right, so right. alcohol is the most conversation uh, that you could bring that up.
0: Well, because it's so accept. I mean, it's, it's yeah, legal, it's legal. Of course. So
1: then you know they're it's okay if they have drinks every night. I mean, there's nothing you know what they think is wrong with that. And so I, I don't know right or wrong, you know, and that's, it kind of makes me think of uh, what's the, what's the goal here? What are you using it for? It's, do you need to use every night or things like that? Um,
0: yeah. And it's just kind of woven into the fabric or tapestry of our culture that, you know, Hey, invite friends over, have a good time. And there's the ice chest full of whatever, right? wine coolers. And you know, I can't have a good Super Bowl Sunday without it. So it's just really
1: very much so.
0: And cool we don't have the commercials on TV yet, where it's like, hey, you know, everybody come over and we'll have some purple haze <laughs> or, so, or something of that nature. You know what I mean? Like,
1: yeah, sometimes I'd rather we just would not have that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Or, <laughs> or
0: you know, raves are a regular part. You know,
1: yeah,
0: that's not something we do, but definitely have uh, alcohol at. Family events and holidays and all
1: that. Yeah, I wish there was more. um, I wish there was more commercials, you know, or advertisements or whatnot that didn't have that uh, alcohol involved and like, hey, let's do this, you know, give ideas to people that is natural fun instead of having to be, you know, intoxicated some way in order to have fun because you don't, it just my clients struggle with that. I mean, that's a huge trigger for them when they're watching the Super Bowl completely sober and they haven't thought about drinking at all. And then they're watching this, they're enjoying themselves sober. And then that commercial comes on and boom, there's that trigger. And then they think, God, I would have a lot more fun too. And it's not even like that awareness right out front like that, but it's just subconsciously they're you know, sitting there thinking, that would be nice. It could be after the game. It could be next week. It might stay the entire week with them. And then next weekend, they're actually drinking instead of Super Bowl weekend. Because of that commercial, it all started there.
0: I know know we mentioned it in the last episode, but it bears repeating. Yeah, um, At the recovery community for the New Year's Eve, we had a big sober party and a lot of people, a lot of stuff, a lot of activities, card games, video games, music, dancing, food, holy cow, food. Mm Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of them were kind of like, I didn't know you could have this much fun, right? Without that's not the, that's the way that's not the way the commercial industry works.
1: No, no, it's a- I don't
0: know what you're gonna sell. Yeah. <laughs> I don't Cards know. against humanity. Have the blast so- time of your life.
1: Sober fun, yeah, that would be. You know, I've been a lot. In my group that I run outpatient treatment, intensive outpatient treatment, which is another thing that goes with diagnosing and uh, where you're gonna place people that meet criteria, you know, at least in my field, where I would uh, if I assess them, where they would where they would go from there, uh, which I can touch on that. but uh, something I've been saying, please do. yeah, in my group is it's different laughing drunk or intoxicated on drugs whatever it is it's so much different laughing sober and having that like gut laugh and it's all natural and it's the most coming from you know uh, from the world that where I was always high or you know intoxicated throughout the day and then getting sober there's nothing like that kind of laughing where it's just real you know what I mean? I, I don't know. It's just it's real, and that's what uh, I love. I love about that, and I I just wish people could experience that or appreciate it. You know, if they don't have an issue and just really appreciate that feeling of being able to smile and laugh and be happy without uh, having to be intoxicated, it's it's uh, awesome. But when I diagnose with a mild, usually usually if I'm Diagnosing a mild use disorder uh, could be cocaine use disorder, uh, which is rare. Um, sometimes, you know, maybe they have a severe alcohol use disorder, but they use cocaine, you know, at the bar, whatever, every once in a while. I would say I could diagnose that as mild or maybe not at all, honestly, because if they're doing it every once in a while and they're having no issues with cocaine and, and really they're just... Um, have used it maybe twice in the last year, they wouldn't qualify for a diagnosis. I mean, that's
0: what I, what little of that I know about is very little. A lot of them use that type, you know, cocaine or that type of a uh, uh, drug is so they can stay awake longer to drink more.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think there's a couple things. So they're, they're just, it's the party, right? They're, oh, yeah, you got cocaine. All right. Awesome. You know, and then there's, yeah, they can drink as much as they want and continue that and now stay up till four or five o'clock in the morning, have a buzz from cocaine and alcohol. So it's way to do it. Yes. No. <laughs> uh, so
0: I do that. I do that playing Final Fantasy 7. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who needs that stuff?
1: Yep. So if I diagnose with like, usually if I'm diagnosing, it's like a mild, um, it'll be something like that or mild alcohol use t- disorder because they come in and they got a DUI. And then uh, you get a DUI and the first one usually is a recommendation of like a DUI class, education class. You know, you teach about alcohol, how it affects the body, things like that. Also about the law regarding DUI. Um, Usually there'll be a presentation by... At some, many places are different, so I can't say this is for everybody, but where I work is how this goes. And then they'll have a presentation by um, a mother that's uh, lost her child uh, to a drunk driver, and that's kind of it. That's the requirement, the legal requirement is that. And then, uh, or I'll have somebody come in, uh, and then they qualify for a moderate, you know, cannabis use disorder and alcohol use disorder, and I might put them. Uh, depending, it just depends what they want. Because if there's legal obligations, some a lot of times probation will want to see them in some sort of treatment. Uh, they might have quit three months ago after they got their second DWI, or after um, you know their possession charge, or something like that. But uh, and maybe that's it. They're done for. Who knows? You know. You. you but most of the time, I'm I'm putting that person in uh, like a basics class to really teach them about the basics of uh, recovery, sobriety, uh, what it means to be, you know, to to bring awareness to that, what it means, you know, the risk of having a substance use disorder, kind of things like that. So really a, a medium intensity outpatient treatment group that might be four hours a week, that might be two hours a week, under nine hours a week though, and then... Anybody with a severe alcohol use disorder or any use disorder, most of the time I'm recommending, depending on their sobriety length now too, because which we can go into this, but say they've had a week sober and they need treatment and they've been using for five years, 10 years, whatever, I might be putting them in an intensive outpatient treatment. Intensive outpatient means nine hours of treatment up to 15 hours of treatment a week. And that's that's what I do for my job is I run an intensive outpatient treatment group. Those are usually the longer term programs. So my program runs for eight months. So if somebody comes in and that's what I recommend, I mean, they're committed to that for eight months. Legal, you know, if they have legal charges, uh, that kind of keeps them in there <laughs> instead of wanting to leave, you know. Uh, and what I really hope for them is that once they get in there and they don't want to be there that by the time they get to the end they're asking me that, can I please stay you know that's that's what i hope uh, and i get that you know sometimes from time to time so and then there's also people that are are ready to change and that's something we could talk about too but um that are ready to change. They have no legal charges. They just have had enough. They've had years of this. And so it doesn't matter though if I'm diagnosing with severe and they're ready to change. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to say, well, if you're if you're truly ready, I would still recommend like an intensive outpatient treatment just because then that gives them the structure and um, hopefully they can gain peer support and start, you know, integrating into the community and, and just really building uh, from there and have that for a long period of time. And then, if you have, uh, this is kind of the last one, I guess. There's a, you know, there's a lot to it, but just in general, uh, if somebody's using every day, they come in, they use the day before, they can't get sober in an intensive outpatient treatment. It's it's just it's just the way it is. Uh, it's it's habitual. They're still in it. They're in the physical. You know, they will physically withdraw, mentally withdraw. Um, it's already hard. Even if somebody has a week sober, it's hard to. You don't see very much where they have a week sober. They come in, I you know, we put them in intensive outpatient, and then they just stay sober throughout the whole thing. That's very, very rare, which is fine. Uh, You know, you work with where they're at. Then I would recommend, so if they're using every day and they can't get off on their own, then I'm recommending uh, residential treatment where they stay. A lot more residential treatments are starting to do, at least in Minnesota. I don't know where else, but at, at least 60 days 45 to 90 days stays, which is fantastic. You know, if it takes you 10 years to get to this point of having this severe substance use disorder, it's going to take some time to unwind. So 30 days is nothing for residential. Uh, but it's a it's a safe place to, to sober up. And then hopefully after residential, people are going into that intensive outpatient to still have structure and kind of go into the community. So.
0: There's kind of a lot of stuff I want to comment on there,
1: please, or do. at
0: least yeah. bring up. I think avenues of discussion. Uh, one was people that are ready to change. Well, uh, when I hear that, uh, not not from you specifically, but a lot of people, I just really want to call BS on the whole rock bottom stuff. That I think there's a lot of borderline propaganda out there that for a somebody in the throes of substance use disorder or an addiction of some sort they have to hit rock bottom before they'll be ready to change and almost training people to um, help them hit the rock bottom faster so like the intent of not allowing somebody to stay with you, or maybe not even that, uh, coming over for a holiday, that that punishment is trying to rush them to the to the bottom, and it's not so much that as much as the boundary setting the boundary there,
1: mm-hmm. which in turn could help. So
0: I guess I was I was gonna yeah I guess I was gonna throw that back to you was about the rock bottom thing that are uh, there situations where. You are telling people like, you, know, you haven't hit rock bottom
1: yet. No, never. <laughs> I, I don't uh, use that, I guess. I, I agree. I mean, I, I don't think you have to hit your rock bottom because um, what is that? I mean, ultimately, that's death. So I guess I don't use that. I think more what I use is, have you gone through enough pain? Are you done? Have you experienced enough pain where you feel like you want to change you know truly change and really you have to change everything so and some people aren't ready they're just it's just the way it is and um, they have to do more research is what we, what we call it out there so uh, one of my things and like my introduction is you know are you are you willing to do anything some people it's interesting to watch people answer that some will say yes, you know, just yes. And then the next question is, well, what are you willing to do? You know, and you'll see a lot of limits there. And so that kind of tells me that they have their own idea of what they think they need to change. And so, um, which is fine. I guess I, I don't judge them for that. And then uh, what I do is kind of let them, okay, you try You try what you're thinking and then, you know, depending on if, that, if it works, great. If it doesn't, which most of the time, I mean, this is their way has really got them here, you know, then they can come back to me and go, okay, it didn't work. And then I can suggest things and they're more apt to listen to that. I guess I could touch a little bit on my story and because it's something triggered when you said not letting them to like holidays and things like that. I think there's part of that that does push people to want to change because that contributes to that pain. You know, my mom won't let me in the house anymore. You know, how crappy of a person am I that they won't let me come to Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever it is. And so I feel like if you continue, which I, I know maybe we have time to get to, to enabling a little bit, I think really keeps people in their substance use. Truly, and not that it's the per the enabler's fault, they just don't know. I, I don't think they know, you know. And then if they do, then that's a whole nother thing. But so, like, my story, I struggle, I struggle with talking specifically about myself. But, um, so I was in and out of jail. She lies, yeah. <laughs>
0: she talks about herself all the time.
1: Way, yeah. I'm just, I listen to you all the time.
0: <laughs> Put a freaking microphone in front of her, and oh, now it's Miss Humility, right? Hmm. Right.
1: <laughs> um, so uh, I started hard drugs, I guess, or addicted to hard drugs um, when I was 21, maybe 22, whatever. Uh, and I started using uh, Vicodin. I had my daughter and they prescribed me Vicodin. I really liked it. I tried like Percocet before, which is also an opiate. And for some reason it was like I was okay not using that again. Like it, something clicked after I had my daughter. And I'm, I'm guessing it's... Uh, maybe a little bit of postpartum depression. It just I could get up off the couch. I felt good, you know. I was that's what I was using to really just help me operate through the day. And then I was feeling buzz too. I liked that. So it's yeah, it was just that. And then I was offered heroin uh, at, when I worked at Super America, and I was looking. So it became like a desperation thing because I was out of Vicodin. So I had progressed enough that I would feel withdrawals from the Vicodin and I couldn't find any more. The person that I used to get it from was out. And then so I was kind of, you know, looking to regulars, (laughs) judging uh, to see if there was somebody that maybe would know where to get something. So I found a guy who fit the look and asked for Vicodin and and he said, no, I don't have Vicodin. And he's like, but I know what else we could get. Uh, and I'm like, okay, well, what is that? And he said heroin. So at first I really rejected that. I mean, I had kind of that typical thought because I knew nothing about heroin uh, of like, I'm not going to be that. some you know, black tar heroin, Person who's shooting up and in the alley. And like, I just, that was scary to me. That's what I mean, that's what I thought that what I saw on TV, what I saw on intervention, that really was what I thought heroin was. But he said, no, it's nothing like that. You don't have to do any of that. It's powder and you can snort it. So I was like, okay, I'm in. Uh, I was desperate. I was in physical withdrawal. And so that's where it began. And the first time was the best. And that's kind of what I chased. Um, and then I I got to a point where it was just maintaining, where I couldn't get out of bed without it. Or I could get out of bed just to go get it. Like that was, you know, uh, where that led. But, which I know maybe we could talk more about that too. Um, but I was going to just say what happened where it became enough pain for me was that I was in and out of jail. I was, you know, getting, driving, um, pulled over. They asked for my insurance. I had. I ended up, you know, it, it became more than just snorting heroin for me. It became uh, using needles because I thought, well, why not? I watched somebody else do it and they use half as, half as much in their needle as I do smoking or snorting it. And so if I decided to inject, then I would get higher and it would last longer. I mean, that's no brainer. Right? <laughs> so so that's really what that drove me down the fastest because as you start doing that, you go into withdrawal faster. So it was just all this really fast downward spiral. And uh, so I have needles and... Going in, the, I get pulled over for a broken tail light, and then you know I go in my glove box and there's needles, and I'm trying to hide them, you know, trying to close it. Maybe it's not in there, and they saw it, you know, and then I'm blaming it on the guy I was seeing, and then he is getting arrested, and so it was just kind of like all these things, and then eventually they catch up with me because obviously it's not just him, it's me too, and yeah, and then but what was happening is like I would be in jail in withdrawal you know you can't get drugs in there uh, not in county jail uh, maybe in prison but um, at least I couldn't but like my mom I would call her you know you get your one phone call and she'd be like yeah no I know you're safe tonight so I'm not coming to get you and um and then she also wouldn't, another thing is like put money on my books. What, what that means is just give me money so I can buy, you know, chips, pop, candy, whatever. And so I'm watching all these girls um, that I would be in jail with. They're all eating well. Um, Jailhouse food sucks. So, <laughs> you know, but that's what I had to eat. I didn't have money. Um, nobody was putting money on my books. Nobody was bailing me out of jail. And so that was... Just one thing that was painful. And so she didn't, what she did well was not enable me. And I think, I think it ultimately helped me. I think it got me, because if I could come in and out of jail and somebody was bailing me out, oh, that'd have been fantastic. I mean, I would have got bailed out and I would have got my drugs felt better and kept this cycle going. And so sitting in there, not doing well, helped contribute to the pain. And then, you know, people started, not talking to me and, you know, didn't trust me, didn't want to be around me. I mean, things like that. So that really was painful. Um, And ultimately, like my, you know, I had mentioned my daughter, she was affected and was taken from me for a while. Uh, And it took a year to get her back. But all that was enough for me that I was just miserable. I was alone. I didn't want to, it was just me and my drug. I mean, really. And then sometimes I wouldn't be able to get that because how am I going to get that? I don't work a job. I can't work a job because if I'm not going up to this, to, um, the city that I went to go get my drugs every day, then I would be out. So then I wouldn't work and then I would try to have to find money other ways. Uh, And yeah, it was just this vicious cycle and I was so tired of it, so tired of it. And I guess you could say that would be a bottom, but it wasn't, it wasn't because I had relapsed too. I mean, all that happened and then I was sober for a while and then I relapsed again. So yeah, I just, it's this fine line, but um, I had went through, yeah, a lot of pain, which I did end up getting sober for quite some time, um, maybe a couple of years, but I didn't Continue to work on myself. I really stopped, and I was just working and doing my thing and thinking that I'll be okay. Just you know, all those all those problems, right? They go away. I don't need to keep working on it. Uh, that's not the case. <laughs> so I still need to work on those. Um, you know, it's not as I'm not as desperate anymore. Like you know, I was very desperate to get my drug to maintain my my high or just maintain. So I'm not going into physical withdrawal. Well, when I got sober, I mean, I had to really be like that. When I truly got sober, like, because now I have seven years, um, I had to really do that same thing, like all that effort that I had put into that drug and, you know, going up to the cities every day, just all, everything. I really had to put that into my recovery. So, every day I was doing something for my recovery every day. There wasn't a day that I missed. I mean, I went into the ditch right by her house and um, still got a ride home, left the car in the ditch and grabbed our other car to go to an AA meeting. That's how I had to be that way though, because I was so terrified that I would have to experience that pain again. And I didn't, I don't want that. I, I still don't. And I didn't want that then. And so I was really doing anything I could to, um, have recovery, I guess. So
0: yeah, I blamed her driving skill or lack of <laughs> her putting the vehicle, this car into the ditch. It was a um, Ford Focus. Yep. So if any of you are familiar with those. <laughs> uh, this would have been like a O2, 02, 2002 Ford Focus. And uh, it was, it was pretty icy out. It was really icy out that morning. And she's going to her uh, meeting and uh, they're, and very very important. And she goes in the ditch. Hitch rides, hitchhikes back to the house. Takes the other vehicle. Does not put that one in the ditch. Lets me know that she put the first one in the ditch. <laughs> so the whole time in a uh, local shop, let me go get it with the their tow truck, and I'm berating her driving skills the whole time. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, I was. <laughs> I'm coming clean. <laughs> and, uh, well, you know, whatever I, I drive it to, um, work m- that Monday morning, check it over and see how much crap she broke. And it's still pretty icy. out. And I kid you not, I, it was everything I could do to keep that stupid thing on the road. I mean, <laughs> it was, uh, it was rough. There was a lot of stuff that had to be done in the uh, rear end, uh, to, uh, get that thing to go down the road straight as not so much on dry pavement. it was fine, but you get in a little slippery situations and good, good.
1: Yeah. Uh, it was
0: really so bad. yeah, it was pretty impressive you made it as far as you did.
1: <laughs> See, I'm a good driver.
0: Yeah. yeah. And then I had to go back and tell the tow truck driver, it really wasn't your lack of driving skills. It was uh, the car. <laughs> I did. I did go back and clear up your reputation. Thank for you. Yeah.
1: I appreciate that. Yeah. It wasn't texting and driving or why does she put this in a ditch on straight road?
0: (laughs) Hey guys, Matt here talking to you about what the Napa Auto Care Center program can do for your business. You probably already know the Napa brand is the most recognized and trusted name in the automotive aftermarket industry. In fact, studies show nearly 95% of customers recognize Napa and associate it with quality parts, service, And technical expertise. So, why not complete a Pro Image upgrade and take advantage of that? Pro Image is a co branding program for the exterior and interior of your shop. On the outside, it includes the Napa colors and distinctive Napa signage. While the public may know you as a reliable, locally owned business, a Pro Image upgrade helps set your shop apart from the competition even further. It is also a visual signal to your customers and potential customers that you and Napa are partners. Most importantly, ProImage really works. This co-branding opportunity has helped Napa Auto Care Centers across the country increase their car counts and sales. In fact, those that have completed the ProImage project enjoy an average of 23% sales increase during their first year. ProImage upgrades are also available for the interior of your shop. A ProImage interior upgrade transforms your customer waiting area from merely utilitarian to warm and welcoming. The goal is to maintain your shop's independent identity while enhancing the customer's experience. You can get a free look at what a Pro Image exterior or interior upgrade can look like by visiting the Napa AutoCare member site and clicking on the Napa Pro Image link under the Napa Pro Image tab. Or contact your local Napa Auto Parts store. Your servicing Napa Store can tell you more about Pro Image plus the hundreds of other reasons to become part of the Napa Auto Care family the largest network of independent auto repair shops in the country. I don't know if it's a good time to bring this up, but it seems to kind of go in line a little bit with what you were talking about that the I don't I don't know if it's so much a mindset. I don't I don't want to say the mindset, but just the 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 severity or the scope of what you're talking about with the the need I think the need to use at least your body telling you so your brain telling you so so one quick story is kind of a rock star story and then the, another one is very very quick about you and not it's not condescending and by any means uh, one is and I, I just what I hope is this qualifies things it's my only hope is uh, Nikki Six is a guitar player for Motley Crue. Motley Crue is not one of my favorite bands. They're, they're freaking hair metal, so <laughs> they're meaningless to me. I do like Six AM, however, sure. uh, a band he started. And Motley Crue is, and specifically Nikki Sixx, are, was well known for uh, partying, drugs, rock and roll. I mean, they were living it up, and he was extremely. I mean, I don't know if that's even. A good technical term, but addicted to heroin, uh, hardcore. And on the way to a practice, he's starting to go into withdrawals. So he pulls into a Denny's, and because of other use, other drug use, I think specifically cocaine, he's developed the habit of needing to do his, do whatever he's going to do. In this case, inject. Uh, in a very confined s- area, so that he feels like nobody can see him do it. Part of it, I think, shame, and a lot of it, a lot of it, was a um, paranoia. And I don't think so much paranoia from the opioids, specifically heroin, but uh, the cocaine. The st- the cocaine stuff was making them very, very paranoid. Sure. So, where I'm going with this is he pulls into the Denny's, goes into the bathroom, goes into the toilet stall and not to turn this into like a cooking show or a how to, but part of the process of using uh, heroin is you dilute it with water and he used the toilet water, which I hope makes everyone go, ew, because I, I think it has to hammer home this understanding of you're not going to these lengths because you want to we're We're out of the realm of want right yep right. I really want a cheeseburger. Uh, I dropped it on a really dirty floor. I don't have enough money for another cheeseburger. I'm probably not eating the cheeseburger. I mean we're, we're talking about a dirty floor. I'm not picking it up, brushing it off. I'd be more apt to drop it on the fl- shop floor, pick it up, dust it off, or wipe it off and eat it than I am the restaurant. Mm-hmm. But this, we're in the needs world. This is now, if you're the same cheeseburger scenario, but you are starving to death, yep. you're picking up the cheeseburger, brushing it off, and you're eating it. Yep. And letting the dirt crunch in your teeth and whatever. What I, You need the cheeseburger. That's the. He. He's in there because he needs it. And then the other thing was um, uh, we were together. This is after the relapse, you're on methadone, but you missed
1: hmm.
0: by like fraction. Yeah, Five you minutes. missed. Yep. Missed getting it. Yep. Again, it's trying to qualify things. If you guys listening could have seen her reaction as the day was going on really early in the day, because she knew what was coming uh, the withdrawals were going to come without the methadone, the, the withdrawals were coming. There's a foregone conclusion. It was going to suck. And just, I mean, mortified, maybe. I mean, it was, I felt so bad. <laughs> and what do you, there's,
1: you couldn't what, do anything. Do do? Yeah. They won't let you in past a certain time. Um, yeah, that was, I still remember that cause it was I, and I think some of it was, I didn't know what it would be like, um, even just one day. So I think I was psyching myself up sometimes. I tried not to, cause I know that was one thing is just like we had talked about it is trying not to think about it, you know, part of a withdrawal is, you know, it, it, at least within that day, you know, you're going to get it the next day. So, but part of that withdrawal, yeah, can be psychological. Um, And I think some of it was and some of it wasn't. It wasn't as bad as uh, heroin withdrawal. Um, But I think a lot of it was the traumatic history, I guess, that I had from heroin withdrawal that probably contributed to the, yeah, just, I was fearful I mean, I didn't want to go through that, right? I'd worked so hard not to have to go through withdrawal again, and I had a good system down, and then I had missed that dose.
0: And it was fairly early on. Yeah, it was. And maybe there was, you know, because it does build up in your system.
1: Yeah, so heroin and and methadone, you know, as I've become more educated in this, I guess, but um, methadone really is like a slow decline, And we're, and a slow build too. So, you know, you build slowly and then you can kind of, it's just like a trail off, not nearly as steep of a incline and and decline. So heroin's really, you know, big burst up and then a huge drop down. But that's what I was scared of what would happen, regardless if I, I don't know if I knew that at that time, but it just, I was scared. I mean,
0: It just seemed early on, you were psyching yourself out. And I know I I was kind of trying to help trying to help. Again, I don't know if I was helping, like some of this it's kind of winging.
1: I think you helped significantly. I think one thing, and maybe I said this before, you did um, a lot of research about addiction and I don't, I don't know what you researched, but <laughs> you did a lot and it just seemed to change your attitude. Yeah. you like to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed to change your attitude and, and just very supportive. And I think that even being able to just talk about it um, is helpful. I don't think you need to do anything. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I'm not saying I knew the. I, I felt like at the beginning it was predominantly psychological. As the day went on, especially that evening, mm-hmm. the, it became very physical. There was physical, yeah, discomfort. Yes. I don't know if it was pain, but it's definitely discomfort. Uh, definitely, um, uh, a- after um, you, you had eventually fallen asleep the muscle spasms Mm -hmm. throughout the night that you're you were not feeling well at all right again it's
1: we don't want to scare people away from methadone methadone's a fantastic no 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 no. methadone was an answer
0: (laughs) methadone is um, I again don't I'm not an expert at all at all but it seems to me methadone gets kind of a bad rap yes especially versus Suboxone, which I'm not not—I'm not sure I understand because I think methadone is more effective. I know there's more BS involved, especially in those early stages where you have to kind of work your way up, not just to the levels in your system, but you have to work up to a level to be able to get your carry home so that you can go a few days a week without visiting the clinic, that you get your dailies.
1: Right. You have to really yeah, be committed to it.
0: Yep. Yeah. But it seems like, and not knocking Suboxone at all, because that has given a lot of people their lives back. So it's that's an answer too. But methadone just seems to get a bad rap. I, I don't necessarily understand it. Uh, it does seem more effective.
1: Well, I mean, I can tell you a little bit about why. I, I think there's...
0: So you agree with me?
1: That there's a bad rap?
0: Well, okay, that I thought was... You're commenting about the bad rap, yeah. not the effectiveness. Okay.
1: Oh, yeah. Sorry. I mean, I don't, I haven't done enough research to, to really see if methadone's more effective over um, Suboxone, but it, it might just be that it could be just for the fact that you do have to uh, commit to it, go to the clinic every day, right? And so what it did, even for me, I think, looking back on it, even though it was a huge hassle to have to go cuz the nearest methadone clinic for me was 45 minutes away. So every day I'm driving 45 minutes there, 45 minutes back. But the good thing about it I think was it gave me structure. I mean every day I had to go get my dose, I'd talk to like not all the time but either talk to a counselor, say hi to people, right? It gave me a connection with other people that also had opioid use disorder. And, um, I would have to take your analysis. So they'd put our name on a board anytime, like we were called for a random UA. So that gave me accountability. Um, and I used it for the right reasons, but I think it gave me, yeah, the structure that I needed in the beginning. I had to go there every day and then I would go there just like I would if I had to write, um, go get my drug. That's what I was doing. Driving up to the cities every day, uh, coming up with the Bull crap (laughs) excuse of why I needed to leave the house, but yeah, it it did the same thing. And so, but this is regulated, and um, I have support with it, and it just it saved my life. Honestly, I don't know how it had been without it if I would have continued to relapse. I don't know. It gave me you know the capability to learn coping skills and have a medication where I wasn't craving throughout the day for my drug of choice, and so then you know, I had to, like I said, I was desperate enough already to change though. I had enough pain and that's that thing where, because people can be on methadone and they continue to use. So, you know, there's, I I don't know, it's kind of this balancing act. So I was ready either way. However, I think it just helped uh, significantly and increased my chances of not going back to the substance of heroin. I wanted to say one thing about the bad rap first um, with methadone is that what will happen is because we are addicts, I guess, right? There's there's kind of this thing that qualifies that and there's things that come along with it, right? We are very good at uh, lying, manipulating, um, and just trying to find, to protect our uh, substance use disorder. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to protect that. and And so it's almost like its own entity and it's taken out and here's your disorder and then here's you. And that thing's constantly telling you, that you need it, right? Kind of that thing with the food where you need it. And so if you don't have it, then bad, bad things are going to happen. You will not survive this um, if you do not have this uh, substance. Alcohol doesn't matter what substance, it's just kind of all the same. And then, so you get really good at lying and manipulating people um, or systems or just trying to find a way to protect it. And so people would go up to the methadone window, right? And they'd be like, uh, you know, the, the nurses and I, you know, no bad rap for them or whatnot, but um, they'd be like, how is your methadone working for you? And so I could say, right? So my immediate brain that's in that involved in um, addiction is, is thinking, well, if I say it's not working very well, then that means they'll increase my dose. And so many, many people... Would do that, and then they would get up. So they would get up in doses, and now they're getting high from this instead of using it for what it is—is is to get off heroin, to stop withdrawals, to to help with cravings, um, and that's really what it's supposed to be used for. And that's what I used it for. Now, in the beginning, I started at seventy milligrams, which, and it's in liquid. Um, I don't know why they do it milligrams, but whatever. So that's what I was at. And they're like, well, do you want to go up another 10? My immediate, my, you know, automatic thought, right, is like, yeah, <laughs> why not? Um, but then I was like, no, I'm, you know, I'm good. I, my logical brain kind of met up with that. And is like, I don't need more. I'm making it through the day. I'm not going through withdrawals, you know, things like that. And so, Um, I said no, and they were, you know, and then they said, Are you sure? And so then it (laughs) reignites that in me to go, Well, am I sure? No, you want more, you know? And then I really had to do it, I think, at least three times say no, that I did not want an increase in my dose. Okay. So now you have all these hundreds of people coming into the clinic getting asked that same thing, and it ignites that. And so then um, they manipulate the system. And they go up to 150 milligrams, 210 milligrams. I mean, I've seen people really, really, really high doses. Now, some people need that. I'm not saying that all of them, you know, 70 milligrams would work for them. And so, regardless, they would do that. Um, and then you have the ones that really aren't ready to change again. And so, they would go up to high doses. They would figure out a way to get take home, so they don't have to go to the clinic every day. And then they would sell it, Right give it away, whatever for, and then, or use, continue to use heroin. Um, I have a at a client or whatever that he goes to the methadone clinic and about once a week is still using heroin. Why? I didn't, you know, I feel like I didn't do that. Why, you know, why can't you just, <laughs> that's just not how it works. His, his brain constantly is telling him that he needs more. Yeah, it's, there's a lot that goes into it. So I think it gets a bad rap and I think, you know, it's, you are going to get the people that don't use it for what it is, and and those are the people that stick out, right? Because they continue to commit crimes, they continue to lie and manipulate, and so, um, yeah. But people like me, uh, they need it needs to be around because it really saves lives too. So, uh, I just did it, which I know we'll talk about this too. But I just did it in a way that I utilized that for what it was, and then I also utilized right many other things. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. <laughs> and and so I'll just go right into this. But when I was sober for that couple of years, right, I got my daughter. I was she didn't wasn't fully back until I met you. So um I didn't get her back yet, but I was close. I was very, very close. And so I was working part time, maybe full time, I don't know, around there about thirty two hours maybe. And I really liked the place that I was at. I was attending outpatient treatments. Um, My employer was so supportive of that, which was really, really cool. And then, uh, but I wasn't going to meetings. I wasn't doing much for myself. So I was in a relationship. It wasn't a relationship that I really wanted to be in. Like I knew that. And so instead of caring, I didn't care for myself, I guess. I was caring for that person trying to figure out how to get my daughter back I was going to outpatient treatment I was bought in you know I really uh, wanted to be sober I knew that like I said I went through a lot of pain and so I wasn't fully committed I still had my own ideas like what I thought life should be what I thought recovery was and so it was just I do really what I wanted I'll listen to you I maybe try some things but you know, ultimately I'll just make my own decisions. Right. And so the biggest thing of all is that I need to get my daughter back. I mean, I love my daughter to death. That was my huge, uh, huge, huge motivator for me, but I wasn't a motivator for me. So like, I, I feel like that's really what brought the difference um, is when I got sober the next time. That was at least fifty percent of the factors. So I had a lot of external factors, like I was still on probation. So I had that. I'd gotten my daughter back. I didn't want to lose her again. Uh, I had a son, and then obviously, you know, I had you, and I had my family who had left me before. So don't even comment on that. I was Some
0: trying to be very hesitant out. on that one.
1: That was not meant to be like that. Just be.
0: <laughs> just because it's uh, my podcast, you have to
1: yeah, yeah. Throw that no, out there, was, and you just felt
0: the obligation rolling off your tongue.
1: Um, but those are all external, right? So I can do it for all those reasons. But that wasn't. That couldn't be the only reason, even though that's a lot. It's just not. It I couldn't do it and not take care of myself too, and so I think the next time I got sober, that was the difference. I could. Before I wasn't really looking in the mirror at myself and, and loving me. Like I wouldn't look in the mirror. I guess that wasn't a, you know, maybe to do my hair or my makeup or something like that, but it wasn't like looking at me. If that makes sense. I don't know how else to explain it. Like it
0: It makes perfect sense to me, but you're talking to somebody that never looks at (laughs) themselves in the mirror.
1: So I, you know, I had a really low self-esteem. I didn't love myself, who I was. You know, I had had so much shame and guilt and things built up inside me that I wasn't working on that first time. I was doing, I mean, the only thing I was doing, which isn't not to discount it because it's important, is being sober. I mean, that was my only thing. So. I was living a regular life, you know, just like everybody else that, you know, if they're just working a job, taking care of their kids in a relationship, doing those things, which I thought was the answer, right? That's what everybody tries to go towards, um, that American dream. But um, it all didn't matter because I didn't like who I was still. That way. The second time um, I relapsed, it was actually after I had my son. And, I, and that's why I had mentioned the first time about having my daughter because I really think postpartum affected me. And then I swore off children. So, <laughs> no more children.
0: Yeah, swore off, swear at. Do not. So.
1: But therapy was a big fact. Uh, the second time, too, I started therapy and that uh, I was a therapist that challenged me, which is important, I feel like, for people with substance use disorders, is to find a therapist that listens to you but doesn't agree with you, <laughs> Uh, you know, because I thought I had my ideas, like I said, and then they're like, uh, you're looking at this wrong and this is what you should really do. And uh, that I just was blown away. So I
0: wish you would say what you said in the vehicle, what? though, about that.
1: Yeah. Well, my ideas is my ideas got me here.
0: And not, not even just yours specifically.
1: My clients. Yeah, even too. But everybody... With substance use disorders, it's kind of like you've been using for ten years, you know, and your ideas got you here. So it's it's time to uh, listen to a suggestion and then do something different. Maybe it's something you don't want to do, even, but what you think is is right probably isn't at this point. I mean, come on, you this is what got you here,
0: so I want to all I want to do is toss out here quick because this is the uh, an automotive pro- podcast. Uh, Or at least after the aftermarket. That sounds remarkably like shop owners, managers, technicians who are unhappy with where they're at. And they kind of almost half-ass ask for advice. And even if they do get good advice, good free advice or the stuff they pay for uh, out the nose, they reject it. Or they don't really apply it because they feel like they know their business better. They know their clients better. They know themselves better. And just like you said, your ideas are what got you here. Why do you trust your ideas? So back on track. That's I just wanted to toss that out there. When you said that in the vehicle um, on our uh, drive to breakfast this morning, that it exploded in my head like, <laughs> yeah, I've seen this before.
1: It's true, though. I mean, it really is. If you know, and that's kind of you have to, you know, put your hands up and go okay, and trust in the process, and really trust other people to almost manage your life, and you know, eventually you can start making your own decisions. I don't think that's gone, Um, and ultimately you do, anyways. It's your choice what you do and what you don't do, but. I think you do. Just have to let go. You really have to surrender and and and, and let go. And I I actually heard that in AA because you know I <laughs> we're good talkers and we think we have the answer. So it's I'm talking and they're like, so where did your ideas get you? Oh crap! You're right. You know and that really just stuck with me.
0: Right, and 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 sometimes when that happens and you get another idea or perspective forces you over to that perspective. And then if you try that advice and you see yep. the results, now now you, all of a sudden you are starting to see the world differently. And
1: well, you have some buy-in now to listen to that, yeah.
0: Yeah, now maybe that, yep, maybe a little nudge and now already you're making better decisions. And maybe it's a few more. I mean, everybody's different, but I I, I guess I can't agree enough and that's not just... Uh, For a substance use disorder or or trying to live in recovery that uh, in life in general, when things are kind of not where you would like them to be or going sideways, you reach out for help and you start getting this advice that you don't, you maybe don't know if it's good or bad, but it's different and you don't like it. Maybe you follow it anyways and find out you're just looking at things a little wrong, a little skewed. Which would be a completely natural thing. It's like it's not some big
1: character no, attack. No. And it's not like every choice that you've ever made is wrong. I mean, that's not the thing either. It's just certain choices got you where you're at. So, you know, you, you gotta stop making those choices. And if you don't have the answer, which you most likely don't, even if you think you do, <laughs> you know, that's where you listen to a suggestion. Um and even still to this day, I think that helped me significantly because I was listening to suggestion, not from just from AA or treatment or therapy or whatever. I was listening to it all over the place. I mean, um, there were a lot of suggestions that came from you, that came from you know where I worked, just everywhere. So I really had my ears open, and then would be like, okay, I'll try that. And so I just took from everywhere, and then I applied it. You know, little by little, of course, but I just applied those things to my life. And then what worked, I kept. And what didn't work, I left, you know, behind. It wasn't, wasn't this big thing. It just, that's just what I did. And I stopped, I really stopped talking and I just started listening. And that was a huge.
0: So how do we get back to that? <laughs> oh.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, and on that disappointment, uh, the, um, <laughs> wrap this up and I <laughs> guess I'm going to yes, pay the price, yes guys.
1: It's um, going to be steep. The eggs in one basket, I wanted to just touch on that really, really fast. So you'll have people with substance use disorders like, okay, all I got to do is just go to AA, right? And that'll that'll fix everything for me. And it could. I don't want to say it, it won't. Like, please go. Um, even if it's just to experience it. But I think you go you can go to AA and you can work that program and then you can use what you get from it and you can stay there or you can go do something else or you can go to AA and then you can go to a recovery community center and then you can go to church if that's something that you believe in and you can go to therapy and you can go, you know, work out like just having all these different avenues of that would promote recovery, um, whatever that is. And so, it's not just putting all your eggs in one basket with AA because say if you have this home meeting that you go to every Sunday and then something happens there where you just feel uncomfortable going there anymore and you're going to stop. You've made this choice to stop going and now you have nothing. So because that blew up and that was your, you know, that was a big part of your recovery and now you don't have that anymore and you have nothing else either. And so you really have to build up a lot of things, not just one thing. You have to have these different parts of recovery. You know, I, my thing's opioids. So I had the methadone clinic too. I could fall back on that. Maybe go talk to my counselor there. I had a therapist. I had my two AA meetings. Um, they were at the same place, but that's where I went. Now, I'm opioids, and I went to an AA meeting because I liked AA. Uh, I know that's Alcoholics Anonymous, and um, but I just, I liked it. Uh, I think it helped. I don't know. I Because I had been to NA meetings too, Narcotics Anonymous, and... I just liked them better. I also went to morning meetings, so I figured out that morning meetings tend to be more serious. They have more of the solution, per se. Um, Not that night meetings don't. I don't want to knock. I'm not trying to knock anything ever. Like, please don't ever take that. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, but you could see how... People wake
1: up, right. If they're waking up early enough to go to a meeting, they seem to um, be serious about it or you'll have, you know, I don't know, some of the older, older people in there that have been in recovery for 15 years, 20 years. I mean, there's just some fantastic people in the morning meetings. And so I just found that works best for me. And some night meetings, you would have people that maybe are are forced to go. And so they're really there not for the solution, but for the signing of the paper so that they can hand it into their probation officer and say, hey, I went to one on Saturday night, you know, <laughs> um, and it just starts your day off off nice. So if you can go to any meetings, try a morning meeting, you can try a night meeting too, but don't just give up after one meeting, you know, go to three or four, go to five, whatever. You can't just stop at one because that people get discouraged and be like, oh, it's not my thing. Well, you went to one and maybe that's just not the one for you. They're different all across the board. So yeah, that was just my little thing on all. Oh, I just have to have a lot of things in place. Not just one thing, and I had a really supportive household. um, I ended up moving back in with Matt, and so he was really mean to me and kicked me out, so
0: <laughs> I raised the rent
1: but oh, but when we we could go into enabling too, because I think that ultimately helped me too, is that we were together i was moving i was oh. moved in or like recently I'd moved in um maybe not all my stuff, but uh which I didn't have a lot because I had lost it over <laughs> over the course of my uh, adventures and substance use. But yeah, I, he's just, you know, he had to, this is the thing that I didn't have to, which I know I'm kind of going on a rant, but I didn't have boundaries. And so what I think you did well was you set this boundary and um, I didn't know what that was. And like I said, I had had those two years of reco- uh, sobriety, right? But it wasn't recovery. I didn't know uh, how to live, I guess, But you had set that boundary and said, for the safety of my kids, um, I just can't have you stay here. It was sad, but I completely, I think I was definitely like, yeah, this is about (laughs) the way it goes, you know and that was it was okay it was a good thing and I think it helped motivate me too though because yeah, you didn't I, continue to enable me and be like well you can stay here what can I do to help like you weren't like that you were like I'll be supportive of you um, but you need to go <laughs> so and it was it was a good, ultimately a good thing
0: I wish I could take credit for that though I mean I, I I could keep my mouth shut and sound like I really knew what the hell I was doing but there was a a lot of it was strategy and had,
1: so you listen to suggestion is what you're saying.
0: <laughs> the thing is, is this was going down during the, um, you know, I was already divorced, but this was during yep. the court BS stuff, the stuff that was being brought against me, trying mm-hmm. to win back custody, uh, from me or not win back custody, actually just win. Yeah. I I already had it. The timing of all this was horrific. I guess I was just livid because of the timing. Like, <laughs> how could you be doing this now? This is so bad that, and this is going to, you know, the, the events leading up to that, uh, you know, it was going to be in the paper, just hand in her ammo, hand in the X ammo. And I was just, I was scared and furious. And that, that probably drove the decision more than anything, because you know, I, I think I've said this before. One of the hardest things after, so after I said you had to go, partly it was damage control for the the future court dates with my ex to make sure I got to keep custody of the kids. Was walking out of the bedroom that next morning, and yep. no baby. Yep. I, you know he's mine. That that's just the way it is and him not being there that was that that was rough i mean that was so rough um but yeah I, i'm very happy to say i think things turned out quite well yeah. now i jinxed it so things are going to hell in the handbasket now Uh steckler and i'll probably be doing a part two soon um <laughs>
1: <laughs> to bring it all back though i didn't I didn't lose everything at that point, right? So if we're talking, if we bring it back to rock bottom, it wasn't like um, I had lost my license, I had got criminal charges, right? None of that. I didn't have any of that the second time. Um, So I didn't, there was no, I guess there was no rock bottom. It was just, I was able, I guess, aware that I didn't want to go back there, Again, where I was in legal trouble, where I was losing my children, things like that, losing um somebody I cared about yeah. uh, that's you again, but um
0: <laughs> they're gonna think I paid you to say that or offered to buy you something <laughs> there was there was a time you stopped over
1: that's something I would have gave up before though I would have just been like, "Yeah, whatever, I care about the drug, and I didn't know, I knew
0: well it was it was the lawnmower, so
1: I really like lawnmowers. You guys so, need a guy with a really nice lawnmower. She
0: worked at the deli, <laughs> and part of the, I guess, part of my uh, strategy for <laughs> seducing her or whatever was, we get, we were just talking, and she, um, I had said,
1: well, I told you a story. Somebody
0: had said something about it. he had a four wheeler. Uh, I, I had insinuated she probably got hit on regularly. And then because of that, I would not be hitting on her. And she had said somebody was in and said that he had a, a four wheeler or no a snowmobile, had a snowmobile, so that him and her should go yeah. for a ride sometime. And so I'm listening to that and thinking how absurd that is. And then I'm like, well, I have a lawnmower. It's a zero turn. Zero turn. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> oh my god. Well, that's that's how that.
1: And a minivan, so that
0: was. We'll talk about that again um, when we do the dating <laughs> episode, everybody. Um, <laughs> there, um, it seems like there was something. Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, at the beginning, you were talking about the levels of uh, substance use disorder, and then the um, treatment plan, if you will. Okay, is that the right kind of the right uh, verbiage yep. to use?
1: Absolutely.
0: Yep. I I hope this is a bit of a softball for you. I'm tossing here. I think
1: we'll
0: see. It's almost like I I feel like if somebody's in there, especially of their own accord, but regardless, that family members or people close to them should also be involved in such that they're in, entering into a program that there's something of a program for everybody else. And part of that idea is learning about enabling and not enabling, trying to walk that line because I find that line really, really hard to find.
1: Right,
0: And I don't know that you can find it, that you're just going to hover around it and do your best not to enable, but to support. Mm -hmm. But to keep going with that, also to set reasonable expectations because I think... You get this idea that oh, they went through treatment. Well, okay, if they went through thirty days, that isn't going to work. They're just going to relapse. But they went through this eight month program. They should be all better,
1: right?
0: So when you get out of treatment, and maybe you don't get sober living, maybe you don't get to go live in um a re- re- like a recovery house of some sort for a while. That you're you're back into the world where you were using to begin with. And everybody's expecting you to be okay now. You're cured.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, You should be doing certain things now like... uh,
1: Working full time, having goals. Yeah, just all these things that you should be doing. Yeah um being helpful, considerate, have empathy, not struggle with mental health anymore. I mean just there's so many expectations that are put on people um, that have substance use disorders. So and it's not yeah I just I don't blame them. It's just um, usually they just don't know. So one thing I I'll just use an example maybe this will help but I have a client he struggles with alcohol use he's there on his own. He's, he's really needing to get his license back or whatever too, but mostly on his own. He didn't, he doesn't need to go to an eight month program. He could get reassessed and right, get a, a shorter term program. Um, but he decides that, you know what? It might be good for him. So this is his coping mechanism though, is to go drink. And um, uh, he's with his girlfriend. They live together and he's been sober a week. It's a task every day to not pick up the drink every day. He's already went through physical draws. There's no physical. It's all mental, and he's having this argument with his girlfriend in that he's. Um, so his job is is kind of ridiculous. A couple people have this type of job where they don't have much work right now because the weather's crap, but. They'll have work for like two days, just enough so that they don't qualify for unemployment. And it's so frustrating. Even to hear about it is frustrating because how are they supposed to survive working 15 hours a week and then not qualify for unemployment? It's ridiculous. But then it continues like this. So he's not bringing in a whole bunch of money, um, because, which is completely out of his control. Sure, he could go look for another job, right? But this is all putting... So the girlfriends um, arguing with him about not working so much, not picking up around the house, things like that. And just the amount of effort that it is to just not pick up that drink is really that can all be expected. is And not even expected because it might still happen, right? But yeah. just not putting all this pressure to do these regular things because that's, that's not what it is. They really need grace within that time to just support how they don't pick up a drink. How can we help with that? Um, Do you want me to, do you want help, you know, if if you're going to be there with them during this, do you need help calling um, somebody? Do you need, you know, I'll pick up the phone for you and call. You know, that's a really hard thing to do for somebody with substance use disorder is just dialing a phone number, honestly. And so it's really supporting them where they're at if, you know, if they're not doing the things you're... Because, so let me, one thing with people who have been using for a long time, right? They've been neglecting their things they're expected to do for a long time. And so you've been wanting this person to do these things forever. And now they, they stopped using. So, of course, why they're not drunk or high anymore. They should be able to do these things. No, that's not the case. Um, what they're working on is just trying to love themselves and not feel ashamed and not pick up that drink and manage the anxiety, right, to not drink or use drugs. And all of that is whirling in their heads all the time. And really, just how can I support? I mean, even even now, I don't know. Like you had called um, to schedule a massage. Why? Why couldn't I knew I needed that done? My I had really bad lower back pain, and and you did that. I think that just I don't know. Just support like that helps. And so it's just kind of being kind of being a team, I guess, with the other person instead of. You need to be doing this, or what are you even? What are you even stopping for? You know, <laughs> like, like, I, I don't know. Just putting on these expectations. And I think another thing um, is the person without the substance use disorder should do their research. Also, get help. One thing that's said over and over again, and I, you know, I don't know if this is some people agree, some people don't, but is it's a family disease. That's because the other person is also usually sick. Now, not like sick, like how you would think, but just as in like they've been enabling this person. They've been maybe going out to the store to get the the booze because the other person doesn't have money or can't drive. You know, that's enabling Um, or doing things like. Going to the bar or just picking
0: up pieces. Yeah,
1: just always, just constantly. And now they don't have that because they're not drinking. And so how do they take care of themselves again? They've been taking care of this person with the substance use disorder for so long. And now they don't have that. And so or they do. It's just different. But really, they need to just take care of themselves. You could do Al-Anon, right? That's going to teach you about um addiction in itself. It's going to teach you about the substance use disorder. It's going to teach you about the person that's using how to handle yourself, how to, right? You go through steps, same as 12-step program. You go through, you're powerless over this thing, You know, the person with the substance use disorder. You're powerless over that. You have no control over what they do and what they're doing. And then you'll go through and um, work on letting it go, letting go of whatever you were doing for that person, letting that go. And then really just taking care of yourself, doing a 10th step. A 10th step is uh, uh, an inventory, self-inventory. So every night you do a self-inventory. Could I have done things better differently? Um, What did I do well today? What did I not do so well today? Do I have to make any amends to people? So really it just focuses on you, uh, the uh, quotes, the enabler, right? It focuses on you and getting you better. And not so enmeshed in this other person. And like how you were, right, is an example, is just that I had to move out. However, I could call you and we could talk. That's fine, right? You're not saying, get over here. What do you need? I'll drive you up to the cities. You know, I had people doing that for me. They would drive me, like my family, drive me up to go get drugs, like that's you know like it's not make people feel bad like that I, it's just the name of the game that's how it happens and and that's kind of that family disease you know And and so that also that person could go get therapy and learn a few things right how to work on themselves again they've been working on this addict for so long and trying to like convince them to stop drinking convince them to stop using drugs right they've been just trying to give them advice and here you need to do this and that blah, blah, blah. Right. And now they've been neglecting themselves working on this other person. So that's what I would suggest is really just, I don't know if that was, that kind of went off on a tangent, but (laughs) that was the original thought, but
0: no, it's, I think it's important stuff. And you said something about shame, yeah, which um, I think just really resonates with me. Um, Just countless, countless Articles, countless, countless interviews with um, people that are active active users or um, in recovery. Some of them have been in recovery and sober for decades. And it used to be, you know, somebody would talk to them about, you know, and, and I'm thinking almost specifically right now of a uh, interview with Steven Tyler, the lead singer to Aerosmith. That um, somebody would say, you know, how it was amazing how much drugs he would could take, mm-hmm. and he said back in the day that would have been like a compliment, and now it's just this wave of shame, like just wants to shrink away, you know. And you think about everything he has, everything he's done, good, good and bad, like the amazing things he's done. I want to yep. like the positive things, the the amazing things he's seen and been able to do and and feel. And yet that is crushing. And, and not that everybody, I think this is a little bit too, eggs in one basket, a little bit, that um, everybody has to follow the same protocols to get the desired result. That's kind of, that's not true. And that's not discounting the eggs in the basket. I mean, I'm just saying like, you don't have to feel like everybody's baskets are going to be the same
1: oh sure for
0: him yeah yeah for him he needs his 12-step program he needs to go to a meeting twice a month if he doesn't he he knows he can tell he can change he can sense the change in thinking
1: mm-hmm.
0: that's that's amazing well one that he recognizes it yep. but uh, you know it's for him. And I think this is important. I think this is really important actually. For him.
1: That's what he needs.
0: He needs that. Because I don't I don't want to forget. And I think almost every single one of these I've done, I, br- I bring it up because I think it's that important. Because got there's a stigma going on too. Not everybody's the same. Some people can use this stuff and never become, never have a disorder with it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And some people will be, will be hard. You know, whatever the extreme level or the you know the highest levels of it, and one day they're just going to be like, "F this! I'm sick of going to jail. I'm or whatever the negative repercussions are, whatever they are, I'm done." And they do it, even against good judgment. The danger they're taking upon themselves because of the withdrawal. Uh, side effects, putting themselves in in real peril. I'm when I'm thinking of like uh, alcoholism, alcoholism for sure uh, comes to mind. But they're done, and they do it. Mm-hmm. They're not a they're not a statistic. They're nowhere to be found on any statistic right. for recovery. Because mm-hmm. who would know? They just got sick of it one day.
1: Right. That's their way, and that's perfectly right. fine. Yep.
0: I guess I say it again. I guess I say this a lot too and it's it's so hard to do. It's so hard to do it uh, and be accurate with it, but be honest, can I do it? Cuz some of some people can do it. Some people can just stop. Bump done. I'm I'm out. I'm done. And others, Steven Tyler, if I don't go twice a month, I'm in trouble. Yeah. And that's okay too. That's <laughs> that is so okay. Yep. Right? And um
1: Yeah, they call that like relapsing and thinking is really because the relapse or what, you know, the continued use doesn't start when they pick up the drug or the drink. I mean, it starts way prior to that. It's kind of this gradual decline. And then you pick up your solution, your solution to all your problems and what's going on in your head is to mask it and to shut the feelings down and use the substance and so it makes sense that that's kind of where his his brain might not even be thinking oh i really want to use you know drugs today it could just be like i'm in a negative mood. okay maybe something's missing for him it's aa for somebody else it might be that they're in aa all the time but they need more like therapy or to do something new like um Have adventure because that happens too where people get complacent. They're going to AA meetings every day. They're going, they're working the steps. They're, they have therapy even, but they're bored, you know, and, and the thing that they used for fun, the thing that they used for everything is gone. And so they need some adventure and that might be going for a hike, you know, to, for whatever reason, or um, just doing something different. It doesn't even have to be like super extreme. I mean, it could be trying out knitting. I don't know. Like just something, you know, because they've never done it before. So it'll give them some like, hey, I'm going to learn this new skill or, you know, welding or something, whatever. It's just that they aren't doing anything different. They've been doing the same thing for years. And now they're like, why would I keep doing it? I'm bored. You know, you need something.
0: Yeah, I would think it'd be really, really difficult to um, deal with the fact that you're probably never going to experience something quite at the level.
1: Never, yeah.
0: To really understand and accept that it was fake, like chemically, what was going on was was fake. You can't reproduce it normally,
1: Not nor- naturally. Yeah, no.
0: Nope. Yeah, it, it you can can't. It can't
1: happen. But not nearly as significant no.
0: but if you can get to the point where you can accept that the the good points, the high points, the good things, the you know what should be euphoric, while maybe not at the level that you had with the chemical or substance, whatever, it's still way up there and still worth appreciating because it's it's real. Yep. I can get into any kind of reality discussion with anybody about, you know, yep. really yeah. model dependent realism. But
1: And I think where that starts, acceptance, right, that you'll never feel anything like it again. You just won't. That's just the way it is. So better start working on accepting that now, um, instead of later. But but I think it starts really with um that and then being at peace having serenity within yourself kind of having this connection with yourself and who you are and loving yourself and not feeling that shame and guilt and you know kind of letting go accepting the fact that this has happened you were in it people are mad at you um they don't want to be around you anymore Um, even though you're sober they still don't trust you that's just reality uh And then working on that slowly, but first working on yourself because, you know, the way people trust you is that you're taking action to work on yourself and you carry yourself differently now. You're not head down, mad at the world, things like that. Yeah, you're just more at peace and um, whatever, you know, some people don't like that word, but... That's just kind of connecting uh, holistically, I suppose. But the mind, body, soul type deal, like it's all connected and feeling okay. You know, you're okay to spend a night at home. You're okay to just be, I guess, you know, just kind of live life on life's terms is a, is a saying in the, in the recovery world. Um, yeah, uh, there was one thing I was going to say just really quick that you had uh, said before about shame. And so, when other people are around their loved one with a substance use disorder, and you see that they feel guilty, feel shameful, things like that, separating, because sometimes what will happen is we can get in this like pity party, feel bad for me, right? I'm in this world of hurt. I don't have my license. I have court coming up. Oh my God, poor me, poor me, poor me, right? And then the saying, "And hey, a pour me another drink." Um, And so recognizing that, uh, and even for the person with the substance use disorder, recognizing that you're in that, you're not just, you know, you, you have a lot of shame and you need to work on that. But not looking at all the negative in your life. You can't continue to focus on that. Otherwise, you will be back in that using world again, because it's too much to handle i mean to handle all of it all at once is too much to handle for anybody that's just you know you have all these negative consequences and then you're trying to handle them but instead what you're doing is sitting there like my life sucks poor me and so not to encourage that behavior um yeah not to fall into that because it gets hard it's hard to, yeah. it's easy to focus on the negative i think we all do it i would really suggest having somebody normal i do yeah i i think it's natural for everybody to do it and so waking up uh what i suggest is like waking up in gratitude instead of thinking about things you have to do today right oh i have all this thing all these things to do uh, i do it too and so instead waking up and going your first thought for the day, and this is from Dr. Um, Amid Sud, uh, waking up and just three people I'm grateful for, three things I'm grateful for. That's what your first thought is every morning. Really sets your day up for success because you're walking around with gratitude. You could even end your night that way too. Um, is important because you have a lot of good things.
0: It's probably been a year or two since I've cracked the top three too. <laughs> hmm. uh, you'd said living life on life's terms. Mm-hmm. And I think that does coincide well with, I think step one where you kind of surrender. Not, I, I don't know if surrender is the, the word they use. It's more
1: step three. Yeah. You're giving, yeah. you're giving your um, will over to a higher, greater than yourself, giving it all over. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Cause you're, what I don't like about what I'm going to say is it might give people license. So it's dangerous. You're not in as much control as you think you are. Right. And I think that plays well with uh, that living life on life's terms and the um, kind of s- accepting or surrendering to a, a, a power higher than yourself, whatever that may be. Okay. Mm-hmm. Some people, it's a no brainer what it is, uh, uh, specifically religion. Uh, other people, it's maybe a little more difficult.
1: Yep.
0: Um, but that's that would be one thing is you're, you're not in as much control as you think you are. Um, but that, I think, should be a positive in that there can be a certain level of forgiveness. And try to reduce... Because yeah, I don't think you'll ever eliminate shame and it wouldn't have to be just for that. It's it's anything, right? I mean, there's just...
1: So I think you could eliminate shame. You can't eliminate guilt. Guilt is one thing. Guilt is positive. Okay. You can... Yeah, guilt, that's...
0: I think a lot of people would correlate the two.
1: Right, yeah. I mean, and maybe that's looking at definitions. Um,
0: maybe Then maybe that... I'll just phrase it that way. You're never going to fully eliminate the guilt. Mm-hmm. But I think you can reduce it down to um, more reasonable levels
1: mm-hmm.
0: and who am I to say what level is reasonable but that you can now function and, and do the things you need to do to get your uh, life back and um, like what I keep hearing throughout our conversation is uh, keep stacking the odds in your favor
1: mm-hmm.
0: so keep doing these things not just one thing, multiple things to keep stacking the odds in your favor of success, and that again that spills over outside of recovery into just life in general. Very much. Um, so you could just keep doing that, uh, and maybe maybe there's something uh, for like a part three. Maybe there's a little something there to build on with. Uh, we had talked a little. Well, I think the title of our first one together was the road to uh, redemption or the road. Yeah. I think the road to redemption and we can maybe even revisit that with you start stacking those odds in your favor for success, that these are the steps to just succeed, stack the odds that you're going to succeed in recovery, but don't stop there.
1: No. Yeah. You have to continue throughout. And I don't like, like, Okay. One thing, anybody can work the 12 steps. I think if you're really struggling in life and you just don't know what to do, start there and just, you you know, utilize how it pertains to you. I think that's what a lot of things. How does this pertain to me? Not not looking at the things that don't pertain to you, which happens a lot. Like, oh, well, none of this pertains to me because it has the word God in it. Uh, a lot of it does. Just don't focus so much on that word. You know, look at other so things So does
0: the money you're using. It's true. (laughs) Uh, No, I agree. I think uh, I would uh, recite something Russell Brand said, and I've repeated because I like it. Uh, If you're not working a program, your programming is uh, working you.
1: Yeah, I like that. That's good.
0: And I don't think people think of themselves as operating systems running around, running programs, but that's almost exactly what you are and what you're doing.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think too, like if you do get sober and you're still struggling, look at mental health. I think they both go very much hand in hand. Um, Not that everybody has trauma history or bad childhood or bad things, you know, happen to them, but, and they still have this substance use disorder. Right. But they could just have anxiety. I mean, without any trauma, without anything. And that's what's really, bringing them back to the substance use. So I I think at least exploring it is worth it. And then I also think what helped me is having support, that connection was a big factor because even if I'm struggling now, uh, I have people to call, you know, uh, girlfriends, um, you, my, you know, I've reconnected with family members that I can call on. And when I was, Really just getting out, I had nobody really. Like there was nobody trusted. <laughs> like they didn't want to talk to me. They didn't trust me. They didn't, they didn't want to hear it. So it's they wanted to support me. However, they didn't trust I was actually at the um road of, hey, I'm ready to get out, because I had said it so many times. So and I think having both, I think having people. Like if you're struggling with substance use, I think having people that can relate with you is important, like that have also struggled. And then also having people that haven't struggled but live a, a productive life. I think because they can kind of what it really did for me is ground me. So when I'm when I'm having all these like irrational thoughts and and just thinking my world's crumbling around me, which I did at eight months, at a year and a half, like, it's not like there was some number where it was like, like you had, we were talking about where it's like a month in and I was cured, right? There, there was none of that. It still isn't like that. There's still things that I can continue to work on and grow. But, um, having somebody to be like, you know, when I would go to this person that didn't have a substance use disorder, like, is this normal? Like you operate on, on, um, you're positive in your life. You have good things going for you. How do you operate? How do you think about things? Because I don't know anymore. You know, I, I have these thoughts that I think are correct, but they're just all over the place. And then, um, I mean, specifically you, you'd be like, no, why look at it like that? You know, <laughs> like, look at it like this. And then, like, things would just click and, I'd, and I would really be like, uh, okay, maybe I don't need to panic over this, you know? because obviously this person has an answer. I don't know if it's the correct way, but I didn't care because all I needed was something to just kind of ground me a little bit. Um, And I could trust in that because your life or whatever, somebody who is, doesn't struggle, wasn't in shambles all the time like mine was. And so how do you do that? Uh, that That was really important. And I didn't have connection, I think, really the first time that I'd been sober. I didn't have that connection. I didn't, you know, I didn't think I got along with girls. Girls are catty and always full of drama, right? Um, so I didn't really have that or connect. And then I, I realized, no, they can be my biggest support and cheerleaders. They, they're amazing. Um, you just have to, anybody, uh, whatever gender, however they identify, doesn't mean that they don't have drama or things in their life. So that didn't really matter. It was really just, are they good people? Are they looking to have the same thing I am, like just living life on life's terms, right? And do we connect? And, and if we did, I, I held on to that. And if it was like, I would kind of reach out and, st- you know, because from before I have, so I have uh, substance use disorder and um, generalized anxiety disorder. And so it was hard for me to dial phone numbers, to talk to people, things like that. But I, I had had enough pain. And so when I was told that I needed to connect with people, that's what I did. And I would ask for a phone number and it would take everything out of me to do that. <laughs> hey, we want to hang out sometime? Like, what do you do? Do you go up to somebody and be like, hey, will you be my friend? You know, <laughs> like I'm in grade school. That's what I yeah. did it was just so but that's that's what I did because it was so important to me that I didn't go back to the girl in the truck puking on my way to you know get my next fix so yeah
0: and on that note yeah. we're gonna wrap this up yeah I uh really do appreciate you coming on again yeah I hope we can have you on again and really thank you uh so much for the uh, being so honest and open, talking about some pretty sensitive subjects and uh, memories and stuff like that.
1: No problem. Uh, and just... As long as it helps somebody. You
0: know, it, I don't know. It's probably really, really corny. Uh, but I just... Uh, i You know, you said you're s- it, it's seven years uh, in recovery, and I just really, really hope that you're very, very proud of yourself for that, because that is a... That is a heck of an accomplishment. Thank you. And I hope there's many, many more of those uh, in store in the future. So
1: as long as I keep working on myself, (laughs) I'll work out. Yeah.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening again. Uh, Remember, you can listen on your very favorite podcast app or YouTube. Don't forget to hit the like button and You hit the little bell, you can subscribe and get alerts that uh, the next episode is out. And thank you again to NAPA for sponsoring. I look forward to talking to you guys again. You've been listening to Matt Fonslow, diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.